Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. This is Kyle Fagala, and we're excited to have you here with us this week. Last week it was Labor Day weekend and there were many of us who were out of town, myself included. Hopefully you were able to catch up on that because it was a great Sunday. Eric Gentry spoke to us on Galatians chapter two. And as you might have guessed, we're going to continue on with our Galatians study with Galatians chapter three. Scott Frizzell, a professional educator and an excellent teacher will be teaching us this morning. So without further ado, Scott Frizzell. Good morning. Hey guys. Um, so this past week, um, I was sitting around the house and I just got home from work um, and Claire walked up and she wanted to do a puzzle. Um, puzzles are relatively new to Claire. She's about to be four, but they just started doing them at school. So now she wants to do them at home. So she came up with this big Ziploc bag full of puzzle pieces and said, let's do this puzzle. It's like, okay. I don't even know if all these pieces go to the same puzzle. Um, but all the same, she dumps them out on the coffee table and we start working on this Disney princess puzzle. Uh, no picture, I don't know what I'm going for, I just got all these pieces that supposedly all go together. Um, so I'm working on it and Disney princess puzzles, I believe, are the worst puzzles and the most challenging puzzles in the world because you've got the hair. You can find each princess's distinct hair color because they all have a different shade, right? You can do that. But then the rest of it, they all look the same. They're all wearing a pink dress. It's kind of shiny. Then they're on a pink background and there's some bows, lots of bows, and you don't know which one goes where. So I'm, I'm a puzzle person and it's driving me crazy that I can't finish this like 36 piece kids princess puzzle. Um, so I'm going at it and I'm rearranging. And Claire's like, well, I want to do Snow White. I was like, no, I've got Snow White. You work on someone else. I'm making progress. So I'm working on the puzzle, going at it. And about five minutes later, I look up and Claire is nowhere to be seen. Like, I've been doing this puzzle totally by myself for five minutes. Like, she's off over there with Juliet, and I just look at myself, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I'm sitting here obsessing over this princess puzzle that I really should not be this interested in. And because I was so interested, my daughter totally left five minutes ago. Have you ever had one of those moments where you just look up in the middle of a task, and you're like, what am I doing? Or even better, why am I doing this? I feel that with yard work a lot. Like I'm getting carried away with some weeds or something. It's like, nobody cares. Why am I doing this? Um, so when I was getting ready for this, and I was looking at Galatians 3. I think that's kind of a big question that's animating chapter 3 is why are we doing this? What's the purpose? And it's a question that I think, especially some of the people in the church of Galatia have been neglecting to ask. Uh, and sometimes I think we probably neglect to ask it as well. Um, doing some research on Galatians 3, I came across a great reference to a poem. Uh, I used to teach English. They don't let me teach English anymore. They let other people teach English. They let me stay in the history classroom, but I used to teach English. And one of the favorite poems that I got to teach uh, is The Charge of the Light Brigade. Great British literature. Um, the story behind it, uh, it's during the Crimean War, which is in the 19th century, so 1800s. It's Great Britain versus Russia. It's this big battle. Um, and one of the British generals makes this huge blunder. He sends the Light Brigade, or the guys who are like totally unarmored and just have like a sword, to charge against a big artillery embankment uh, of the Russians. Uh, there's an explanation, of course, because when he gets you know, asked about it later, he has a reason he did that. And it was an accident, it was a mistake. But anyway, these 600 guys go charging in at a bunch of cannons. And you can imagine how well that goes. Um, and Alfred Lord Tennyson writes an epic poem about it. So I'm gonna read just a little bit of it uh, and then talk about it for a second. So he says, 
Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600. There's 600 of them. Should have accepted that. Forward the light brigade. Charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade. Was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew someone had blundered. There's not to make reply. There's not to reason why. There's but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell. Boldly they rode and well into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. There's more. And at the end, of course, he turns it to, it's really awesome that they did that and cool. But I kind of read it and I always feel like it's kind of stupid that they did that, right? Like, you know, you're in the 600 and you're charging in towards those cannons and you're thinking, who thought this up? right? Or at least that's what I'm thinking, which may be why I'd be a really poor soldier, right? But these guys, they hear the command to charge these cannons. They're like, okay, that's the charge. Let's go. And in fact, even when some historians did some digging on the story afterwards, they found, you know, firsthand witness accounts after the fact, and they're trying to piece what happened. Why did they send these guys with nothing but swords to attack these cannons? Um, and so, like, there's even a part of the story where some guy, like, rides out to try to stop them. Like the guy who brought the command is like, oh no, they're doing the wrong thing. What did I do? And he runs out there, but he gets killed. Uh, so they keep going uh, and they go charging. There's actually a few survivors, but the idea of why are we doing this? Like they don't stop that question why, right? Uh, I think the line that stood out to me, uh, there's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. And I think we do that sometimes. We start rolling along in our Christian walk and we have these certain routines and actions that we kind of do repetitively, right? And we don't ever think about why we're doing them or what's the purpose in doing them. And sometimes in the act of doing that, we wind up somewhere we don't intend to be, possibly riding into the jaws of death and the gates of hell um, or whatever, as Tennyson said. So if you will, if you've got your Bible or a phone or whatever, if you go to Galatians chapter three, uh, so, Eric did last week on two, and Winston in, uh, did the intro in chapter one before that. But some brief refresher on the context, right? Um, Galatia, it's a whole group of churches that Paul has visited in the past, and they're really struggling with this idea of how to handle the Jewish law, okay? So at what, in what way uh, are Gentile Christians required to follow it? So we've got Jews who have followed the laws of the Old Testament their whole lives, right? All these food laws, uh, all their baby boys have been circumcised seven days after they were born, all these uh, involved complex rules that they have followed their whole lives. But then you've got Gentiles who have just recently converted, uh, and they have seen the light of Christ, and they've started to follow that. And there's this big question of, do they have to follow our laws? Do they have to follow these Jewish customs in order to be saved? Um, and so Paul takes up a pen and he writes to the churches in Galatia uh, about this larger question. So you can stay in Galatians, 5, uh, Galatians 3. I'm going to flip back real quick to Acts 15 because it's such a big question. They pull together all the church leaders in Jerusalem. They get together all the big wigs and they say, let's, let's get an answer together and send it out to everybody. Um, so in Acts 15, uh, let's see, this is verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Interesting point. It's the Pharisees bringing it up. 
who I feel like are the villains of the New Testament. Like, I feel like whenever the Pharisees show up, it's something bad's happening, right? And we get to boo them or whatever. Uh, but here, they're in the meeting for Christians, right? And they're saying, all right, what's going on? They say, these guys got to follow the laws because we've been following the laws. And if you skim down uh, towards the end of that section, Peter gets up and starts talking to them. You know, Peter, kind of the, the rock of the church. Uh, and he says, let me see, what he says, verse 10, he says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the, on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? One more time. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? So I feel like Peter's saying, we haven't exactly done this so great either, right? And now you're saying, they have to do it? So this is the dispute that's erupting in all these churches in Galatia, right? You've kind of got these two factions, the group that says you do follow the law and the group that says you doesn't. Doesn't. Don't. That's why they don't let me teach English anymore. <laughs> and uh, I think when we look at it from present context, right, it's kind of easy. It's like, well, yeah, they don't have to follow the law of Moses. I'm not about to start observing all those food laws. I live in Memphis, right? Um, but... I think on the inside, we kind of all relate more with the Pharisees, or at least I know that I do. Last night, uh, Ashley and I were at Zoo Rendezvous. Um, we go every year for her birthday. I never buy tickets. Um, her parents work in the restaurant industry, so we go and we serve at their table for like 30 minutes, and then we go off and eat food. Um, you're supposed to rotate in 30 minute shifts, but we never come back because she's the owner's daughter, so she gets away with whatever. So we're going around Zoo Rendezvous and we're eating. Um, it's kind of a miserable experience for me. I can't eat gluten, so I can eat ice cream, and that's about it at Zoo Rendezvous. But I go around with Ashley and we try all the stuff out. So the, the highlight, right, is that you have to get all the way over to the Gus's tent, because why wouldn't you, right? Um, so we go to the Gus's and there's a long line uh, to get a sample of Gus's. So we're waiting in the line and we're just making good conversation, chatting, and it takes probably about five minutes, which is Zoo Rendezvous, that's a really long wait for like a one little small sample plate of something. And we get up there and she's about to get her chicken tenders and this lady just like walks in from nowhere and just grabs the last plate and walks off with it. I'm livid at this lady. I'm like, there is a line. But I'm not bold enough to say a word. Like this is all in my head, right? Inner monologue. Uh, I'm furious at this lady because, and then she brings her friends. Hey, they've got Gus's over here. And these group of people just walk up and they start grabbing all the plates. I'm like, you're not going to get any, get one. Someone move these, you know, and they call the police or something. I was pretty upset about it. And Ashley's just like, eh, it's okay. I'll, I'll have more. I'm like, how can, you, how can you not be upset about this? This is enraging because we're following the rules. We're doing what we were supposed to do. And there was a reward at the end of the rules, and they got it, and they didn't follow the rules. And I think that's how our Pharisees are feeling with something, in their opinion, slightly largely more important than Gus's fried chicken. They've been sitting here following the rules for a really long time. And now they're getting their reward. And people are just like walking up and taking it like out of nowhere. And they're like, these people have not suffered like we have the five minutes I was waiting for the fried chicken or the life that I was following all these food laws. And now they get equal access to that. Like that makes me mad. And I don't want to follow the food laws, right? So I think we can see what's animating them. Can I get a volunteer, please, to read Galatians 3, verse 1 through 5? 
Thank you very much, Grant. One through five. One through five. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you'd heard? Are you so foolish? After being, uh, after beginning, effect, yes, beginning, by the means of the Spirit, <laughs> I thought I could read. Uh, you are now trying to finish by the means of the flesh. Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing in what you've heard? First, let's agree that Paul's not being especially nice right here, right? I mean, he opened with you foolish Galatians, which I feel like you're only pulling out when you're kind of upset with somebody. Um, So Paul goes ahead and lays it out there for him and says, why are you saved? Right? Which is a question we all know the answer to. Well, yeah, we're saved because of Jesus. But, but, but there's also the rules that we have to follow, right? Like, that's part of the deal, right? He's like, no. That's not why you're saved. You're saved because of Jesus. And whenever you try to start thinking, why did I get this? Why did I get the Spirit? Do, does having followed those rules answer any of those questions? No just small corollary something else you're doing at the same time maybe even if we think outside of like mosaic laws right even more to like christian laws today that we obey and we observe right those are things we do because we believe but those are not things that save you but i think we're drawn to those things because those things make us feel like we are somehow an actor in all of this right that we are empowered in this that that it's something that we do that helps it happen right when the the true Thing that we struggle with so much is that it's nothing that we do at all. Continuing on, he says, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are the children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Back that up one more time. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that the faith we might receive, through, so that through this faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. There's something so powerful about having obeying something and then something happening, right? Because you get that feeling of satisfaction and pride, whether it's waiting for Gus's fried chicken, or maybe if it's when you, uh, I see this all the time at school, when a kid wins an award for something at the end of the year, 
because they did it, right? You know, I didn't miss a day of school or I got all A's when there's probably like two actors involved. I mean, the teacher answer is to say, you earned your grade, but really we could have not given them the A, right? Like it wasn't totally on them. Um, but there's something about feeling pride and satisfaction and you having achieved something. But that's not what he's saying at all because he says, if you're gonna look at the law as having saved you, then you better have followed it flawlessly. And have you done that? Because the Bible tells us, cursed is anyone who doesn't follow the law, and so as long as you follow the law completely, no errors, then I guess you're in good hands. And remember, Paul's had pharisaical training, right? He's gone to school for all this. He's been one of the most righteous by the law people out there. And he's the one saying, you can't do this. So this is someone who's seen it and been there. And you can't do this. You can't survive that way at all. Okay, so he's trying to lay out to them not to rely on this law, which I think then leads to a bit of an identity crisis for our uh, Jewish Christians in Galatia. Because suddenly, the thing you've devoted your life to is being told to be meaningless by Paul, who's a pretty big figure in the church. So it begins, it opens this question, okay, so if the law doesn't matter, why do we have it? Paul anticipates this because he wrote the book, right? So he's already, he goes where he goes next because he's a teacher. He knows, what he, he knows what they're thinking. But seriously, it's like they just looked up from their puzzle, right? And they're like, why have I been doing this this whole time? If it's meaningless, what was the point? So that's where he goes into next. He says, brothers, let us take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds meaning people, but, and to your seed meaning one person who is Christ. Okay, got a little bit wordy there. So he's saying, okay, time out. Look at Abraham. We know that story, right? Basic uh, Bible, class, Bible Sunday school story, right? God makes the promise to Abraham. The promise is that he's going to have a great land and that he's going to have a great people and they're going to have all this inheritance before him uh, because of him. He spells it out in Genesis 12. Let me flip back there real quick. So he's at Genesis 12 when he says this to them. I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Which if we think about where this story of the Bible goes after that, right? Goes through the story of the Israelites and the people of Abraham. But that's not all peoples of the earth, right? That's a very small subset. Uh, and so Paul starts to spell it out. He says, look, God made this promise to Abraham long, long ago that everyone would be blessed because of him. Not just Jews not just people directly related to Abraham, right? But everybody. So if that's the case, and God doesn't change his promises, then something needs to be explained a little more clearly. So starting picking up at 17 again in chapter three. What I mean is this, the law was introduced 430 years later. Does not, it does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So the idea being right, that uh, 
the promise that he made to Abraham that he would save all peoples in all places and they'd be blessed because of Abraham. The law isn't what makes that promise happen, right? Following the correct rules, getting all the boxes checked about being a good follower of God, that's not what does it. Because then what's the point of the promise, right? Then it's more like a contract, right? Like God saying, okay, I'll save you, but here are the terms. But there's no terms. And he says, and look, those terms came up 430 years later. So the law has nothing to do with that promise and nothing to do with being saved, which now I think if you're a, a Jewish Galatian Christian, you're probably sitting here going, okay, so why? What's the point? Why have I wasted my whole life on these laws if you're telling me they don't matter? And sure, maybe I buy in now, but like, what's the point? We're rule followers and we've been following the rules, so you're telling us it's for nothing now? So he says, uh, what then was the purpose of the law? It's like the people who are reading are like, finally, right? What then is the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So until Christ had come. So it was added because of transgressions until Christ had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believed. I think Paul's answer, if you're a faithful Jew, Jewish Christian at the time, it probably sounds right, but it probably sounds really frustrating, right? He says, no, the law doesn't matter per se, right? It doesn't matter as much anymore. The real key is the promise. But the law was essential before Christ was here to follow and to obey. It was your best shot at doing what you should do, even though we know you would fail but it was somewhat of a map to follow. But now it doesn't matter as much anymore, right? It's not a requirement as long as you're focused on that promise. Um, I think back to uh, when I was, I don't know, I think I was like 17. Ashley and I had just started dating, so it's probably somewhere around there. And I was on a family vacation um, with the Frizzell family to Florida. Um, one of the strangest vacations ever because it was the first time that like the Frizzell family had like a small camcorder with us on the vacation, which of course led to like the whole thing being documented in ridiculous amounts of detail. Like I know every single thing that happened on that trip, unfortunately. Um, and so at one point, uh, it's almost lunchtime, it's about 11 o'clock and my mom, who's the, um, the secret ruler of the family, right? Nobody knows it. <laughs> Because you think it's dad the way he kind of carries himself, but really it's mom because she'll just say one aside and she'll keep saying it over and over again until it happens. So she's eventually really the ruler. So she says, I want to go eat at Captain Dave's. I've seen a sign for it on the main drag on 98. So dad, you know, is kind of like, well, you know, I don't know where that is. We, gotta, we might need to stay somewhere closer to home. And she's like, no, yeah, no, I want to go to Captain Dave's. 
well, the kids are still out on the beach. I don't know if we're going to have time to pull that off. Beth and like, no, I want to go to Captain Dave. So we get in the car, all of us. Uh, my oldest sister, Amy, was not on the trip, which we still make fun of her for because she feels so left out. Um, so the four of us are all in the car uh, with mom and dad, and we're driving down the road, and nobody knows where this place is. <laughs> like, I guess this was before like Google Maps or like iPhone app had really like hit mainstream, I guess, because like no one was pulling up their map or Googling it or anything. We're just driving down the road looking for Captain Dave's in the general direction of the billboard that mom thinks that she saw. <laughs> so we left at 11. And by 12.30, the four kids in the car are unbearable, myself included. Uh, now, we're mostly teenagers at the time, so we're not whining, crying when we're going to be there. We're just making fun of my parents mercilessly for dragging us on this fruitless endeavor to nowhere. And we keep driving, and we keep passing all these other restaurants. And they start to look really tasty, like, oh, there's a Whataburger. Let's just go there. Let's just go. Oh, there's a Krispy Kreme. Let's go there. Let's go somewhere. Just We don't care about Captain Dave's anymore, Mom. But Mom, she's still the true ruler of the family. No, I, I want to go to Captain Dave's. <laughs> and Dad tries to get on board with the kids. Well, Beth, I don't know. We can find it another time. Why don't we keep going? No, I want to go to Captain Dave's. So we keep, keep driving. Passes 1 o'clock. So we've been on the road for two hours now. you got to think we're getting close to having to stop for gas or something. Um, so we're driving around. Uh, we were staying out right outside of Pensacola, and now we're in Destin. Like, <laughs> surely we're going to find this place somewhere. <laughs> Driving, driving, driving. Finally hits 1.30. Everyone's really hungry now. <laughs> really, people are starting to get a little mean. My older sister, Kim, is the most savage, I think, of all of us. And so she was really starting to get kind of not just humorous mean, like mean mean. So it means we're about to be out of time. So we got to find this place quick. Um, and so we're getting closer and getting closer, we think. Finally, we turn off on this side road to turn around to go home, and we see the billboard. I'm assuming it's a different billboard, but whatever. It's a Captain Dave's billboard. Mom's like, oh, there it is. Of course, it's 20 miles the other way. And it's like, well, how about we just eat something now? And we'll, now we know where it is. We'll come back later. But I want Captain Dave's. <laughs> like, this place better be good. So we go 20 miles back. It's almost 2 o'clock by the time we finally get there. So it's been like a three-hour journey in the car. Um, and we pull up, and we all get out of the car. We're stretching, ready to go eat whatever this is. I don't care. It's food at this point. They're closed. <laughs> They're only open for dinner. <laughs> we went back for dinner that night. Uh, it did not take three hours to get there. Um, but I think that's where those Jewish Christians in Galatia find themselves sometimes. They've been abiding by all the speed limit rules. They've been following all the laws of the land, but they have no clue really where they're going. And somewhere that just doesn't help, right? The laws can be very beneficial at keeping you in the proper direction, but at the end of the day, if you're not sure of your purpose and where you're going, the laws are totally useless to you. And a lot of these Christians in Galatia have found themselves in that place. They have followed the laws expertly, but they have zero idea of where they're going, and especially not why they're going. And if they're honest with themselves, and I think this might be true to us too, when they look up at themselves, pause what they're doing, look away from the puzzle, say, what are we doing? 
why have I been doing this? What is my purpose in having done this? If you look at the way that uh, Paul wraps it up, I think it's pretty interesting. He says, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith, by nothing else but our faith in Christ and his sacrifice. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. I think, thinking back to my driving analogy, because it's kind of what sticks in my head, I think we're probably driving down our Christian interstate a lot, right? And we're doing a fantastic job of following all of our laws. But if we don't know where we're going, it won't matter much in the end. On the flip side, right, you can follow all the laws, still get the correct exit, right, and end up where you're supposed to be and everything's peachy. But if you're on a road trip and, I don't know, you speed a little here and there, who doesn't? <laughs> um, and you, I don't know, get creative, you don't use your turn signal, right, you break some small laws, right, but you still remember what your exit is. You're still purpose-centered on that. You're still going to make it, right? Of course, if you get a little bit more ambitious and a little bit more reckless and you drive a little bit, lot more faster or slower, that's going to be dangerous too, right? Maybe you don't make it there, right? There's a, there's a point where it's reckless and dangerous and you could die or what else, right? So the law has a value, but law is not the answer. The law has the value in guiding you to where you need to go. But the law is not the end-all, be-all, because if it were, we'd all be dead. And so I think what Paul's telling these Galatians, and he's telling them, look, the law is important. Keep it if you can. But as long as you're all focused on the same exit, on the same purpose, on the same goal, and you're not focused on the immediate task, but on the looking up purpose, you're going to be headed the right direction. And these new Christians who just skip to the front of the line that drive you so crazy, they've got their eyes looking straight up at the fried chicken, right? They're staring at the fried chicken. They are in the end goal. They're not letting anything else disrupt them, and they got there just like you did. And I think that if we think about it, that probably has an implication for us too, because we're good church-going folks, right? We like to think of ourselves as following the line rules correctly, and it can sure be aggravating sometimes when those other people pop up in front of us in the line. But that doesn't change that they're at the front of the line now. They've made it to that purpose goal, which should be our focus. So maybe it's jealousy, maybe it's frustration, maybe it's that, oh, I followed the law and they didn't, that gets the Galatians, that gets us. But in the end of the day, that's not what really matters. So I'm gonna pray real quick and then we're done. God, thank you so much for today and for allowing us to get together and, and spend some time looking at the Galatians and ask that you be with us as we try to do our best uh, to follow you and to serve you um, and to remember our purpose and not get distracted by the tasks that appear. In your sins name we pray. Amen. So I want to thank Scott Frizzell for an excellent class this morning. Uh, he was joking with me that for whatever reason when he teaches, I'm never there and a lot of the teachers aren't either. And I just want to say if Scott's out there listening or a family member of Scott's is out there listening, that is not intentional. I think Scott's awesome. I think he did an awesome job this morning. He's a better storyteller than I'll ever be. And obviously his training and education uh, has really come through. So uh, Scott, thanks for teaching. It was awesome. Next week we have David Flatt teaching on a little bit of the very end of Galatians 3 and then on into Galatians 4. David always does an excellent job, so we're excited to have David back with us. 
Hope you have a great week. Hope it's a real blessing to you, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.